And now I'm trying to look at myself so that I can turn these things that I clearly am not capable of thinking my way out of. You hear it in meetings a lot. We are not going to fix our broken brain with our broken brain. Only God can do that. The same mind that earned me a chair in Alcoholics Anonymous is not going to solve the problem of all my character defects. Only my willing submission to maybe getting a bracelet that says, what would Jesus do? I don't know. I've never done it, but it's not a terrible idea. Do I put to the test my big and small decisions in life of how would God have me act in this situation? And to me, that is the essence of humility. Well, hello, friends of Bill W. and other friends. You have landed on Sober Speak. My name is John M. I am an alcoholic, and we are glad you're all here, especially newcomers. Newcomers, that is, both to recovery as a whole and newcomers to this podcast. Sober Speak is a podcast about recovery centered around the 12 steps of Alcoholics Anonymous. My job here on Sober Speak is simple. My job is to provide a platform to the amazing stories of recovery all around us. Consider Sober Speak, if you will, your meeting between meetings. Please remember, we do not speak for AA or any 12-step community. We represent only ourselves. We are here to share our experience, strength, and hope with those who wish to come along for the ride Take what you want and leave the rest at the curb for the trash man to pick up. Well, hello, lords and ladies. That was the voice of Mr. David G that you heard at the beginning of this episode. And you were going to hear, you were very fortunate, you were going to hear so much more from him in just a moment. But first things first, this episode Right here, right now, at this very moment, the one you were listening to is brought to you by Mr. Jason G. and David C. You know what they did? They got out their either their laptop or their uh, uh, their PC, their Mac, their device, whatever it is, and they used the World Wide Web Internet thingy, and they went to our website, SoberSpeak.com. They clicked on the donate tab on the top right corner of the web page and they made a contribution thank you so so much jason g and david c for your generous contribution i could not do this without you this episode is for you now once again i hope you don't mind we are gonna let all the other folks listen in on this episode but this one's coming out to you guys all right so What is the significance of the date, August 30th, on this here, this here, planet Earth, you ask? Well, the significance is, is that we are going to have a shindig in the city of Frisco, Texas. All right. So if you're in the area, and I realize, by the way, the vast majority of you are not in this area, but you will be there with us in spirit, I know. And I'm also trying to figure out a way to stream this thing uh, uh, via Facebook, if I can figure it out. Actually, probably if I can, if I can find somebody... <laughs> that knows how to do it is probably going to be the case. But anyway, we're going to try to stream the event to the Sober Speak uh, secret Facebook group. All right. But anyway, it's on August 30th. 
We are going to feature Mr. Jimmy D. By the way, if you haven't heard Jimmy D, he is on episodes number 54 and 55. I highly recommend you go back and listen to Jimmy. Just to kind of, even if you're not coming to the event, he is just absolutely fantastic. And I know you'll get a lot out of his episodes. But anyway, that's Friday, August 30th at 7 p.m. at the Grace Avenue United Methodist Church in Frisco, Texas. So, Uh, more to come, but I just wanted to go ahead and put that out there. So if you did not hear Mr. Jack Z from last, from last week, it was called the grouch and the brainstorm. Please do yourself a favor and reach on back into the archives. Actually, you just go back one episode, but that sounds better that way. Reach back to the previous episode and treat yourself to a a delectable piece of podcast gold. Did I just say that? A delectable piece of podcast gold. Yes, I believe I did say that. Is delectable a word? I think delectable is a word, but if I'm not mistaken, people usually use that to describe food. But nonetheless... Just go on back and listen to Mr. Jack Z. I know you will enjoy that episode. So I attended a meeting today and my friend Georgette was chairing that meeting. And the subject in the meeting was the spiritual uh, experience, the appendix in the back of the big book. And she read the entire thing. I'm not going to read the entire thing, but I want to point out a couple of pieces that kind of stood out to me. And uh, it says, most of our experiences, the spiritual experiences they're talking about, are what the psychologist William James calls the, quote, educational variety, unquote, because they develop slowly, slowly over a period of time. Quite often, friends of the newcomer are aware of the difference long before he is himself. He finally realizes that he has undergone a profound alteration in his reaction to life, that such a change could hardly have been brought about by himself alone. What often takes place in a few months could seldom have been accomplished by years and years of self-discipline. I posted that in the Instagram, or I posted that on Instagram, and um, Cassandra replied to that, and she said, Cassandra, she said, JM, hard day for me today. I needed to hear this more than you could even fathom. Sometimes the process of sobriety, sometimes the process of recovery is messy and it feels that way to me right now, but the outcome is worth it all. Amen, Miss Cassandra. I understand that. Boy, do I understand that. And then Brenda posted, she said, accepting life as it is without resistance has given me a new freedom from the bondage of self. So a couple pieces that really stood out to me. And the first part was the piece that says, he finally realizes he has undergone a profound alteration in his reaction to life. 
he has undergone a profound alteration in his reaction to life. Now, I'm not going to go through every single bit of my sobriety here. I want to get on to David G. in just a moment, but I can tell you that I started to figure out really early long that life itself did not change. Hopefully, sometimes, sometimes I say, not all the time, but sometimes my reaction to life has changed along the way. Sometimes I will see things from a different perspective. Sometimes the questions change in life. In other words, and sometimes instead of me asking, why are they always treating me this way? Perhaps I can ask, what is my part in this? Where have I been selfish, dishonest, resentful, and afraid in this situation? What could I have done differently? How can I reframe this entire situation? How can I look at it from a different angle? Now, I'm not perfect, folks, by any long stretch of the imagination, I promise you. But if you take a snapshot of me before coming into Alcoholics Anonymous, and you take a snapshot of me today and where I am, something significant happened, right? And I don't care whether you call it the great reality within or whether it's called God, or whether it's called a higher power, uh, or whether it's called many different things, but something entered into me in a miraculous way, and I don't see see life in the same way, and I do not process it in the same way. Another part that stood out for me in that reading was uh, the piece where it says, quite often, friends of newcomers are aware of the difference long before he is. There's a long involved story to this, but I remember seeing my mother on the top floor of a psychiatric ward, and it was just like one flew over the cuckoo's nest. I remember seeing her, and she had been locked up because a judge had deemed her both a danger to her and to society. I remember looking at her and having a discussion with her about my participation in Alcoholics Anonymous and about how I was trying to make things right. And she looked at me, and she had never said this to me before. She said, something's different about you. Is it that God that you talk about? And I said, I don't know, Mom. But whatever it is, I'm hoping you can be happy, joyous, and free. I'm not sure how you're going to get there. But if there's some way that I can help you to get to that place... I'm hoping I can. And there's much more to that story, but that's what it made me think of when I read that passage. All right, so in the super secret Facebook page, as Mr. Dave calls it, Julie W. posted this. She said, we are people who would not normally mix, but there exists among us a fellowship a friendliness, and an understanding which is indescribably wonderful. We are like the passengers of a great liner, the moment after rescue from shipwreck, when camaraderie, 
joyousness, and democracy pervade the vessel from the steerage to the captain's table. Unlike the feelings of the ship's passengers, however, our joy in escape from disaster does not subside as we go our individual ways. The feeling having shared in a common common peril is one element in the powerful cement which binds us, but that in and of itself would never have held us together as we are now joined. The tremendous fact, folks, for every one of us is that we have discovered a common solution. We have a way out on which we can absolutely agree and upon which we can join in brotherly and harmonious action. This is the great news this book carries to those who suffer from alcoholism. The Big Book, page 17. Ah, beautiful. Thank you for posting that, Miss Julie. All right, so I know that your time is valuable and there are many things you could be doing with your hour besides listening to this podcast. And I so, I really do, folks. I appreciate you tuning in. It means so much to me. I hope and pray that by listening to this podcast, you are able to get a sense of what is possible and you're able to glean some sort of insight from the amazing men and women that share their experience, strength, and hope on this podcast. If you have not joined us in the secret Facebook group, please send me your email to john, J-O-H-N, at soberspeak.com and I will invite you. If you're already in the group, you can invite others. Keep that in mind. And I have a couple of different asks for you. If you have had, if you have been affected in a positive way by either an episode, one episode, uh, or the entire podcast itself, please take time to stop and share this with a friend or family member that you think may benefit from this. I want the people that come in here to share their experience, strength, and hope to be heard by as many people as possible where it is appropriate and they can help people, right? If you're not following me on Instagram, please do such. I am at at SoberSpeak, all one word, and I read all my direct messages and I would love to hear from you. And if you are an iTunes subscriber, if you could leave us a review, uh, it it really does help. Uh, They tell me so uh, just, you know, uh, even if it's not a good review, hey, I'm okay with that. You just leave the review that you want to you want to leave, but I'd love to hear from you. All right. Now on to Mr. David G., Uh, Talking about steps seven through nine, this guy is a dynamo. He means the world to me. How he keeps all this information in his head and just spits it out all at the drop of a hat, I will never know. But I am thankful for him in my life. I am thankful for what what he shares with the Sober Speak listeners, and I am thankful for the impact that he has had on Alcoholics Anonymous as a whole. So 
Um, enjoy Mr. David G. And there'll be some listener feedback at the end of this episode. Adios. Okay, everybody. So once again, we are blessed, at least I think I'm blessed, to have Mr. David G. here behind the microphone again. So David, why don't you, first of all, just go ahead, introduce yourself and give your sobriety date, if you wish, for those of you, for those out there who have not heard your other episodes yet. All right. I'm David G. I'm an alcoholic, uh, sober since September 15th of 1993. September 15th, 1993. All right. So um, David has been here for I'm a, it's four or five other episodes. I, I can't remember. Sounds like about I, four, I maybe. Yeah, yeah, right in that area. And what we started, at first we started with David, and he just kind of told his story. If you look at any of the episodes in Sober Speak, there's a 80 plus. It could be like actually 90 by the time we actually end up releasing this one. But you will find uh, David's uh, kind of his story uh, on the front end of Sober Speak when we first started this out. And then we did another follow-up with him. And then I had somebody write in once, and they asked me if I could have David do all the steps after we did steps one, two, and three at the beginning of the year. So that is what we are continuing on here. It's a, uh, a episodic adventure here with Mr. David G. <laughs> and so he did steps one, two, and three, and then he came back and I think did four, five, six, and seven. Am I correct? Touched on seven. Four, five, and six pretty heavy, and then touched on seven. Okay. So we touched on seven. And so what we're going to do is we're going to pick it up at step seven here today and follow through with that. And we will just see how far we get through the steps. I have learned from the first couple of episodes. I don't know exactly where we're going to end when this thing starts. We'll do our best. That's right. So David, step seven, humbly asked him to remove our shortcomings. Humility comes up in that step, obviously. It's talked a lot about in the program. Why don't you start there with humility and your interpretation of that, if you will? So I can't speak for normal people. I'm not sure I can speak for alcoholics even, but I know I can speak for myself that one of the big drawbacks for me in my life has been how reliant I am on my thinking. I mean, basically, if I think it, I believe it. I think if I think something wrong, I'll believe something different. So the thoughts that go through my heads, the way I look at things, the way I read people, the way I read situations, uh, my opinions about anything from sports to religion to politics to Alcoholics Anonymous, they all make sense to me. And if they didn't make sense to me, I would change the way I thought. And so basically, I walk around completely relying on the way I think most of the time to get me through life. Now, like I said, I can't speak for normal people, but I'm not exactly sure how other people don't do that. You know, I see people walking around with the kind of what would Jesus do bracelets on, and I think to myself, do they really use those? Is that something they do when they're driving down the street? Do they come up to a stoplight and they, and they get angry at someone? Do they look at their wrist and say, what would Jesus do? You know, I have no idea what other people do. For me, this has been a big problem because I've always kind of knee-jerked life. What The way something hit me is the way that I reacted to it. And of course, the best way is to have a, some sort of pause, which we'll talk about later, and to be able to think about what I'm doing and not just be a walking around feelings-driven person. Um, but when it boils down to it, my best thinking got me to AA. And that's a, something we say to newcomers all the time, and it's not a compliment. 
Um, my best thinking getting me to AA means that if I could have done anything any better, I probably wouldn't have ended up sitting in the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous, that I truly uh, followed around my thinking, my decision-making, my desires, and created such a mess that I had to walk in, really stagger in to Alcoholics Anonymous and the other 12-step fellowships, desperate to find a way to survive alcoholism. Um, And so much of that was driven by consequence. So what does that have to do with humility? First and foremost, I didn't know what I just told you for most of my life prior to coming to AA. Oftentimes today at 25 years sober, I don't recognize that that's what's happening. So oftentimes in my life, I start to run into trouble, run into anxiousness, get that feeling in my gut like I'm nervous, like the other shoe's about to drop, like people aren't understanding me, this isn't going the way I need it to go, and I don't immediately recognize that I'm in the middle of self-will because I trust my thinking. I believe that the way I think makes sense, it makes sense to me. Um, And so this idea of humility is this recognition you know, a recognition of who and what I am, of how my thinking isn't necessarily reliable. Now, of course, there's a line, there's a sign on the walls in most AA groups. It says, think, think, think. That actually comes from a section of uh, step 11 in the big book. And we'll talk about it when we talk about step 11. But there's a, it talks about, we think about the 24 hours ahead. In, in, In other words, we start to train our thought life to follow along with having a relationship with God, that our thought life needs to become a part of our relationship with our higher power, whatever that looks like for us. But the steps kind of dictate that. Why do the steps need to dictate that? They need to dictate it because even in sobriety, I find myself relying on my thinking instead of relying on God. Instead of doing being of service to other people, trying to find ways for other people to be service to my needs. And when I do that, other people recoil just like they recoiled from my alcoholic drunk behavior. They recoil from any controlling behavior. You know, when you go back to the step two and three and in in how it works, and it talks about we step on the foes of our fellows and they retaliate seemingly without provocation, but we invariably find that sometime in the past we've made decisions. What am I making decisions on based on self? What is self? Self is the way I think. And so if I am relying solely on the way I think to make decisions in my personal life, I am going to continuously step on the toes of people around me and then be all sad and not understand why they're reacting to me the way they react. In other words, my defects of character surface the very most when I am not aware that I am the cause and perpetrator of my defects. And so when I talk about step seven for myself and when I talk to sponsees and clearly on this podcast, what I'm really referring to is an awareness of who and what I am. What is my place in the big decisions and small decisions of my life? If I am God-centered, I am typically being of service to other people and people like me a lot better. In other words, when I don't know everything, I have a lot more friends. And when I'm a know-it-all and I think I'm in control of everything, and I don't know if y'all can tell by listening to me on this uh, podcast that I can have a tendency to be really kind of uh, bossy and overbearing and type A personality, um, it's a struggle for me. It's not easy for me. It has caused a lot of problems for me as a parent, uh, certainly as a father. When my daughter was a teenager, we bumped heads a lot because I was not uh, empathetic and thoughtful to what the needs of a 14-year-old girl might be socially at school and stuff. It all just seemed crazy and stupid to me. And you know what? People don't like you to tell them that the way they think and what they care about is crazy and stupid. They just don't. 
they don't have any respect for that opinion. And I had to learn that. You know, that was at 14 years sober because I got sober the year my daughter was born. Um, and I had a lot of learning to do. And I'm sure anyone whose parents out there recognizes after a time how humbling being a parent can be. It's not just humbling from the perspective of having a recognition of what your your kids, your children's needs are, but it's also humbling in the recognition of, God, what did I do to my parents? I am so blessed to have the two kids that I have and now my adopted son, Jack, because the way they treat me compared to the way I treated my parents, again, this is a humbling thing for me to recognize. You know, we talked about it in step four and five. You know, I had tremendous resentments against my dad for treating me the way anyone would treat a child who acted like I acted. And somehow I blamed him because he was the adult. He was supposed to put up with it. What a childish brat I was. Moving back into humility, all of those, these things gather together. In the very beginning of working the steps, the stuff I'm talking to you right now, I hadn't had a chance to be a parent of a teenager when I was two years sober. She was basically a toddler. So the longer I stay sober, my humility has to grow and grow. You know, people will joke in a meeting, and it's kind of a backhanded joke. They'll say, you know, if you think you have humility, then you don't have it. And, you know, I, I don't really know what they're getting at there, but the, the point of talking about humility in this program is not the point of me telling you I'm humble so you'll think I'm a nice guy. The point of talking about humility is the point of talking about who am I? What am I doing here? How am I supposed to treat people? You know, Maya Angelo, Maya Angelo, I think that's how you pronounce her last name. She's not a recovering alcoholic to my knowledge, but heck, she may be. But she has a quote, and it basically says, people will not remember what you say or what you do, but they will never forget the way you made them feel. And when I think about that in terms of the way I treat people around me, casual contact at the grocery store, um, less casual contact at AA meetings, the way I share in meetings, the way maybe I share at people who I disagree with or passive aggressively roll my eyes if someone starts to say something I think is stupid or in my personal life with my family and my children or in my work life, how am I making people around me feel? Do I come across as a person who's genuinely interested in the way uh, what other people think and how they feel and what I might do to be of service to them? Or do I come across as a person who, if I don't get my way, I'm going to throw a tantrum and make everyone's life miserable? And I'll tell you, I'm capable of both and everything in between. And so this idea of humility isn't about labing, labeling myself humble. It's about coming to some recognition of what I'm really like. I've done this inventory. I've looked at the way I treat people. I've talked about the defects of character that are very obvious when I look at the way I've treated people. And now I'm trying to look at myself so that I can turn these things that I clearly am not capable of thinking my way out of. You hear it in meetings a lot. We are not gonna fix our broken brain with our broken brain. Only God can do that. The same mind that earned me a chair in Alcoholics Anonymous is not going to solve the problem of all my character defects. Only my willing submission to maybe getting a bracelet that says, what would Jesus do? I don't know. I've never done it, but it's not a terrible idea. Do I put to the test my big and small decisions in life of how would God have me act in this situation? And to me, that is the essence of humility. Maybe we ought to get little bracelets to say, what would uh, David G. do? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's a bad idea. <laughs> you know, part of the reason that... Uh, I like doing these um, interviews is because I get to sit right across from people and I could tell that for sure when you were talking about your kids 
and your gratitude for them that it hit a spot deep within you uh, and you had to hold back there. Um, can you, do you want to talk about that a little bit more? In Well, I was terrible to my parents. You know, I didn't realize how terrible I was to my parents until I'd been sober a while. I, uh, I cared for both of my parents as they were dying. Uh, they both died of, of cancer and and I was sober and they were both in Dallas and my siblings were not around the area. They were around uh, emotionally, but not physically. And I spent a lot of time with them and, and it really shone a light on what wonderful kids I have and how being raised in a house where the 12 steps and the principles of the 12 steps are alive and happening. You know, uh, I think I shared, I don't know if I shared this when I was speaking or I was doing this with you, John, but um, that when I was about 35 years old, I was with my dad on a long trip and he said to me, you know, the biggest mistake I ever made in my life was leaving your mother and you and your sister. Um, and I almost crashed the car that I was driving because I turned and looked at him because I could not believe that he acknowledged that he had ever done anything wrong. It, it wasn't that he was a bad man. He was never taught that that was a need. You know, in fact, if anything, my dad was one who told you never to apologize because then people know you've made a mistake. And I can't tell you how many times I've apologized and made amends and told my kids about my fallibility, about <clears throat> the mistakes that I've made currently and in the past and, you know, how I want to work so hard not to treat them that way or make them feel in any way less important to me than any, because they are the most important people to me in my life. And I've said that to them and, and been there for them. And, and as my parents were dying, uh, I really recognized what a blessing it was that Alcoholics Anonymous and the 12 Steps healed that cycle that had been in my family for generations. Wow. And I know your kids, and you do have good kids. Yep, they're good ones. All right, so let's... Uh this is a good time for this, and I'll just do a little announcement here real quick, and then we'll, then we will hop into step eight, Okay. okay. We will be continuing our conversation with Mr. David G. in just a moment. Just a reminder, you are listening to Sober Speak. You can find us on the web at www.soberspeak.com. You will also find the donate button on our website, which you can use if and only if you feel really good about it and the spirit moves you to do, so, do such. Please keep in mind, this is a podcast funded by you, the Listener, SoberSpeak is a self-supporting organization through our own contributions. We are not allied with any sect, denomination, politics, organization, or institution. We do not wish to engage in any controversy, neither endorse nor oppose any causes. All right, now back to Mr. David G. So we've kind of gotten through step seven. I'm sure there's always more we could say about it, but uh, that's a thumbnail sketch of step seven. And now we want to kind of make a leap into steps eight and nine. Well, let's just go with steps eight, right? I mean, people usually put eight and nine together, but step eight is made a list of all persons we had harmed and became willing to make amends to them all. So just like in step three, as soon as it ended, it said next, we launched on a vigorous course of action. 
in the next formal prayer in the book, there's a lot of little prayers, but the next formal prayer is the seventh step prayer. And at the end of the seventh step prayer, it says, now there is more action. And that's what we're going to talk about, the more action. You know, there's something, I haven't read anything. I've said things and butchered quotes multiple times in these podcasts, but this is something that I want to read um, and, and give a little explanation of. It's it's not long, and I'm going to skip a little bit so I don't make too long of it. But this is in step eight of the 12 and 12. It says, in many in instances, we shall find that though the harm done others has not been great, the emotional harm we have done ourselves has. Very deep qu- Deep, sometimes quite forgotten, damaging conflicts persist below the level of consciousness. At the time of these occurrences, they may actually have given our emotions violent twists, which later have since uh, discolored our personalities and altered our lives for the worse. Then you just skip down a little one sentence. Since defective relations with other human beings have nearly always been the immediate cause of our woes, including our alcoholism. We find uh, no field of investigation could yield more satisfying and valuable rewards. The reason I read that is in the big book, which was written by guys who were three, four years sober, and they had had the experience of doing most of their amends by the time they wrote it, there's a, there's a, uh, a lot of very valuable stuff about cleaning up the past, cleaning up business situations, cleaning up financial situations, legal situations, situations with our spouses uh, about infidelity or just dishonesty within the household. There's very nuts and bolts stuff that these guys did. But then you skip forward 12, 13 years and you get the 12 and 12. And the 12 and 12 is full of stuff like I just read, that we have these things that have caused violent twists to our Uh, what discolored our personalities, whatever. That's why I read it. These powerful instances in my life that have occurred that though other people may not have known about it, you know, give you an example. In my past, when I lied to you and you believed me, that was, in my view, sort of a victory. It added to the facade that I was doing what I was supposed to be doing. Even though you caught me red-handed, if I could look you in the face and convince you that you were wrong, I think they call that gaslighting these days, where I make you think you're the crazy one because I'm able to pull off that, no, I didn't steal from you, or I'm not high right now, or no, that wasn't me with that woman, or that's, in other words, I was able to turn the tables on people. And a lot of times I was successful at that. Um, Doesn't matter why I was successful, uh, but I was successful at it. And what was I successful at? I was successful at convincing myself that I couldn't trust anyone in the world around me, that anyone could look anyone in the face and lie, that I could catch someone red-handed and know without a shadow of a doubt that I was right about what they were telling me, and that that would be easily turned around by them simply looking at me in the eye and giving me that strong, I mean it, look, can't you tell I'm telling the truth right now? How can you accuse me of this? And that somehow I'm going to be convinced that what I know to be true is a lie. And so when it talks about discoloring our personalities, so much of the damage that I did in all of those lies and all of those deceits and all of the infidelity and the, and the drug use and the, and the stealing and the just disingenuous behavior that I went on for years, whether I got away with it or not, inside of me was this broken soul that couldn't trust, couldn't believe, was always looking for someone to you know, steal from me, lie to me, cheat on me, and what a painful place to be. 
And, you know, the book talks about it being defective relations with others. The defective part of the relation that I have to deal with is my defective part of the relationship. Nowhere in Alcoholics Anonymous does it tell me that I'm going to somehow be able to teach the people around me to be better people. Now, certainly there is the attraction rather than promotion idea of AA, that as I get better, the people around me may or may not be drawn to that. And if I can set a good example of what the big book means and what it can change in people's lives, which has happened around me, I can tell you that there are many people in my personal life that my sobriety has been something that they were attracted to and they have found sobriety themselves in whatever their problem was. But that's not what this is about. This is about what do I need to do to get over, to alleviate these fears, alleviate this pain. And I'm, I'm going to tell you now for this alcoholic, this is a lifelong process. Um, things have to happen in my life. Not every single stimulus that you can imagine happens in your first 30 days of sobriety. A lot of the stimuluses of life happen over long periods of time. Loss of relationships, loss of careers, uh, people passing away, people just giving up on you, people going crazy, people treating me wrong even though I didn't deserve it, being the victim, the uh, hapless victim of someone else's disease and having to accept that, you know, they weren't doing it to me, they were just doing it. You hear that? But that's easy to say to someone else when it's been done to them. But when it's been done to you, it's not so easy to just look the other way and say, you know what, God, I hope that that person just moves along in happiness. You know, it's very difficult not to take a lot of the things in life personally, things that happen to everyone. Everyone has the problems I just described. No one that I'm aware of gets through life unscathed by the world being difficult to them. But my reaction to it was created by all of the ways I used to treat people. Because I didn't just steal, I stole from you. I didn't just lie, I lied to you. One of the biggest, most painful lessons that I began to learn in early sobriety, and it was a blessing because it propelled me, is that the more that you loved me, the more that you cared about me, the more that I mattered to you, the worse that it was going to be for you. That you were going to suffer to the extent that you loved me. That only the truly healthy that could walk away from the situation that I presented were going to have any chance at safety from me. If you were codependent and needed Alan on really bad, loving me was going to be really bad for you. And I didn't feel good about that. You know, I kind of had the behavior of a sociopath and the feelings of a hopeless neurotic, which is a bad combination because I walked around hurting people and then felt worse and worse about it. And I had to anesthetize myself. Well, here I am, stark raving sober having a lot of truths shown to myself, most of them very difficult truths, the truths that turned into blessings for me, but when they're happening, those truths can be painful. The writing of a fourth step is one of the most liberating things I've ever done. It was hard. It hurt. If I'm not hurting a little bit, then I'm probably not doing anything. You know, this is not supposed to be easy. Looking at these relationships, looking at the way I treated my mom, who I love more than anyone in the world when I came into AA. There was no one that mattered to me more than my mom, and no one was a victim more than that woman. To the extent I'll tell you right now, I think that the way I treated her weakened her and, and made her susceptible to the cancer that killed her. I honestly believe that. I don't know that it's true, and I'm not trying to victimize myself or poor me. I'm just saying the way I harmed others was profound and it mattered. And so here I sit sober, being a better person, trying to do the right things, trying to make up, trying to make amends. Amends doesn't, isn't a, I'm sorry. 
I said, I'm sorry a million times. An amend is a change in myself, a change in the relationship, a change in the imbalance and the value of what you do for me versus what I do for you. And I came in at a huge deficit with everyone in my life. I'm here to tell you, no one in my life treated me one-tenth as poorly as I treated the people around me. I wouldn't put up with it. I'd move on. And so here I am faced with this list of people, the same list from my four-step, the same people I had resentments for. There were a few added people, but here I have this list of people, and now it's time to look at these relationships. Sure, the first three or four or eight steps I did were very mechanical. I stole your money. It was really hard, especially if you didn't know I stole it, okay? If you knew I stole it, I was way more interested in going and making that right because I knew you knew I was a thief. But man, there were people on my second and third, eighth step that I needed to make amends to that had no idea that it was me that took their stuff. Friends. I'll give you an example. A guy in my fraternity, I was drunk one night and he... We went and stayed at his house. He lived in the same town his family did where uh, the college I went to at the time was. And he was very wealthy. And, you know, I didn't have a car. My parents, uh, I had wrecked my car, actually. They'd helped me get one, but I wrecked it. And he had a BMW. And, and, you know, to me, he was a rich guy. And he was my friend, and I liked him. But everything was handed to him, in my view, on a silver platter. So when he passed out, I saw his radar detector in his window, and I took it. And I stuck it in my backpack and I took it home. I didn't even have a car. (laughs) (laughs) So I take it. And many, many years later, I remember doing it. I'd forgotten that I'd done it. And many years later, maybe seven or eight years sober, I had remembered while I was doing my inventory, oh my gosh, I stole my buddy's radar detector and I never... So I just took (laughs) took the horse by the bit and called him and I told him what I'd done. And he sat there silently and I was like, are you still there? And he goes, yeah, man, I got to go. My best friend from childhood, I haven't spoken to him since that happened because I thought he stole it. Mm. And he hung up, didn't even say goodbye. Wow. And even that blackout, stupid thing that I did, the harm that I caused this guy and his friend who lived next door to him the whole time they were growing up and had not spoken in like 10 years because I had stolen from him. These are the type of kind of things that come up over time. And as they come up, I begin to recognize that these are the things that drive me. These are the things that I have done to other people that I can't seem to heal from. They've healed from them. Maybe, maybe not. But I haven't. And so when it talks about this being the immediate cause of our woes, including our alcoholism, I just think about all of the damage inside of me today at 25 years sober when I struggle to trust people at times. It's way better than it used to be. But when I create this list of people, I am also creating a list of harms that I've not only done to other people, but that I have done to myself, particularly when I got away with it. You know, it's funny, one of my sponsees was sharing in a meeting the other day, and he's very new, and he's very young, and he's a great kid, and he was sharing about how, you know, he knew that uh, he knew that God was watching over him because he got pulled over, and a beer bottle fell on the floor, and the cop didn't see it, and all he got was a speeding ticket, and I thought to myself, man, 
probably the best thing that can happen to people like us is that we get caught. You know, maybe when God's really watching out for me is the day the cop sees that beer bottle and busts me for it, when this stuff gets exposed. Because as long as I can get away with this stuff, I just continue to get sicker and sicker and sicker. And this list, this eighth step list, this list of people we've harmed and what I've done to them becomes the list that begins to liberate me from not being able to have relationships with other people. Talk about where that list comes from. Well, the big book tells me that the list was already made when we did our fourth step. And I do believe that to a big extent that's true. There's not many people on that list in my fourth step that by the time I'm done with my fifth step, I don't realize at least to some degree the harm that I've done them. But there's, you know, there's always going to be more. And it's it's funny that as time has gone by, you know, I'm a person and everyone's different. Some people do one fifth step and they never do another one. Some people do one every few years. I'm one who do does a, a, a real let's work through the first six chapters of the book every year. And that eighth step list has morphed for me through the years. And the same people on the same list who some are deceased. So there is no new information. But as I make those lists today, now as a grandfather versus a father of a teenager versus a father of small children versus a man who didn't have children yet, because I've experienced all of that in sobriety, my understanding of the way I have treated other people and what it was really like for them And what it did to me, maybe, by being that person to the people around me and feeling justified and acting that way has really been kind of the growth thing. So the list, the names may be the same. The harm I've done others has morphed as I've grown up. I mean, really, so much of this is about just growing up, you know? All right, so let's hop into the ninth step here which we've already talked about to some degree. I I should say you've already talked about to some degree. But for those listening at home, right, uh, just to stay in order, um, ninth step is made direct amends to those except, uh, and I'm doing this off my head, excuse me if I get this wrong, but made direct amends to such people wherever possible except when to do so would injure them or others. Mm -hmm. So when I was, I mean, this is crazy. So I got out of treatment in 1992. And when I got out of treatment, I had been helping with the youth group at church um, just as a help. You know, I always had gone to youth group and I was very, I was helpful. You know, I, I enjoyed it. And, uh, and when I was in treatment, all the kids from the youth group, um, wrote me letters. I got all these letters, just big envelopes full of little, you know, big envelopes full of letters from 10 people at a time. I was there for 30 days and I probably got three batches of these Hmm. where they wrote me these, how they missed me and how they couldn't wait for me to get back. And it was, you know, it was really nice, you know? And, um, and so when I got back, I went back to helping with them and I was doing really good. I was staying sober and things were going well. And sometime later in that spring, the church needed another youth director uh, just for temporary. And so I became the interim youth director. And I had a great time with the kids. And we did a lot of great things. And, and um, you know, I really didn't lead them in any bad directions, you know. It was, it, was a, it was a nice thing. 
I started relapsing though. And during the course of that relapse, you know, things, the bolts loosened, <laughs> the screws loosened. <laughs> and, um, and I went to a summer camp and at that summer camp, there was a lot of, uh, just out of, just graduated high school kids. And it doesn't really matter what I acted inappropriately at the camp with one of those, you know, basically incoming freshmen in college. I was 25 years old. Um, so it wasn't some horrible thing, but it was wrong. And, and it was certainly wrong at a church camp. And so I got sent home in shame. I mean, it was a whole to do and we don't need to get into details, but it was awful. I humiliated myself. I humiliated my mom who was a minister at the church at the time. And it was well known amongst the church that something had happened. No one really knew what, but that I had caused shame to the church and the the whole thing, you know, and again, rewind back to when I was in treatment, the way they treated me, sending me letters, the church actually helped pay for my treatment because I'm, I didn't have enough money to go. Um, and, um, I resigned from my position there and I stayed away from the church for a while. That was the summer of 1993, not long before I got sober and in about January of 1994, I'd worked through the steps and I felt so different. And I just decided I was going to go back and sing in the choir again, like I always had. And I was so scared, you know, and I walked back into the, the church that night. It was a little Methodist church in North Dallas, wondering if they, if I was going to get looks or, you know, what was going to happen. I didn't know what was going to happen. I just walked in and everyone looked at me and started screaming that so happy that I was there and clapping and hugging me. It was unbelievable, right? And, um, and I started singing in the choir again. Well, at this time, I'm doing my night step. And I don't know what to do. You know, I tell Clovis about this experience I just told you about. And I had, those people were on my list from, you know, a month or so ago from when I had, you know, because you go very quickly. It's weird when you do your four step. You like you go from four to nine in a day, right? <laughs> I mean, it's crazy because one, two and three take so long. So Clovis said, you know, I don't know what you're going to do there, but you'll know when it's time. And just, you know, I the what amends you've done so far have been good. You know, just follow the script of of talk about what you've done and, and, and be gracious about anything they've done and don't bring it up. And so I sing in the choir and everything's going well. And I come to church one Sunday and I have no idea cause I don't pay attention to any mailings or emails. If there were any at the time, probably not in 93 or 94, but I walk out into the sanctuary and our choir loft was at the front of the sanctuary. Now I'm gonna have to give a little quick backstory. So there's a man at the church. His name is Leonard. He's passed away now. It doesn't matter what his last name was, but Leonard didn't like me. Leonard didn't think it was appropriate that I was the youth director, that this guy ran out of treatment. He used to make kind of smart aleck comments to me sarcastically about things that I would do or say. Uh, he could tell I smelled, I smelled like cigarette smoke, and he said, you know, would say things like, it's nice that our youth director's teaching the kids how to smoke and, and that kind of stuff. Leonard wanted nothing to do with me. He was an older man, and he saw through me. You know, the ones you really hate, the ones that see through you. Right. And so let's go back to that day at church. So I walk out, and I sit down in the choir loft, and I'm looking out over the sanctuary, and all of the kids from the youth group are there with all of their siblings and all of their parents and their grandparents and everyone else, and the place is full. There's not an empty seat in the church, and I don't know why. 
because it's not like that every Sunday. I'll see a couple of them here and there, and it's very easy to avoid them. I don't know how to do it. I didn't do anything specifically perpetrated on anyone at that church, but uh, the harm I did in general to these people was clear. No question that I had harmed the people at the church and betrayed them. And so I look at the program, and it's, it's Youth Appreciation Sunday. And so all the outgoing seniors, which includes a lot of these kids who I've known these years that I was the assistant director and then the director, are sitting there, and I am, oh, apoplectic. I mean, I am sitting there, my heart is racing, and I don't know what to do. So after the announcements, Charles was the minister, and Charles, I swear he had never done this before. I don't know if he planned on doing it or it just happened to be, but after he said the announcements, he said, does anyone else have anything they need to say? And I felt like someone had put a fish hook in the back of my pants and just pulled me up out of my seat in the back row of the choir loft. And I said, Charles, I do. And he turned around, he goes, David, what's going on? And I said, and I made amends to the congregation. I told them that they had trusted me with the most precious thing in their life, their children, and that I had betrayed that trust. And I was ashamed and sorry, and that I was doing everything I could never to treat anyone like that again. And I was overcome. I sat back down in my seat. He said, thank you. And I couldn't control my emotions. So I stepped out into the sound room next to the choir loft. I was in the end seat, so it was easy. And I'm standing there. I'm just trying to compose myself. I'm not leaving. I just don't want to sit there bawling in front of these people, you know. And, um, and as I'm standing there, these arms wrap around me from behind. And I had no idea who it was. Uh, it was too big a person to be my mom. And after a minute, you know, I stopped and I said, okay, I'm ready to go back in. And when I turned around, it was Leonard. And Leonard looked me in the face and he said, I am so happy for you. And it was like life-changing. I knew the moment that I left that church that I never had to drink or use drugs again. That is a fantastic place to end this for step nine. And I think we will continue next time you come back. I'll give you a chance to kind of go away, reflect, get some more experience. We'll come in for another session. We'll start with 10. Who knows? We may get to 12. Never can tell. But uh, I appreciate your vulnerability, David. And I appreciate you coming taking time to come here and sit down and share with others. Um, it's what this thing is all about. It sure is. God bless you, my friend. I love you. Love you too. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. David G for your insight and your wisdom. You take mm, subjects that are very complex and you put them in layman's terms so even guys like me can understand. So we will be having David back at some other point. And um, we will start on step 10. And we will see where we get from there. Who knows? We could get to 12. We may only do one step. Uh, but I'm going to have David back in for all of the steps at some point. All right. So on to, well... 
what I'm calling today listener feedback, but I'm going to try another little phrase out here that Miss Catherine wrote in with. And by the way, if you're new to this uh, podcast, <laughs> you'll have no idea what I'm talking about here. But uh, anyway, I'm going to try a different title here. We're going to call this Speak to Me by Sober Speaker on Sober Speak. Anyway, it's a version of listener feedback. So Steve R. posted in our secret Facebook group, he said, as we go through the day, we pause when agitated or doubtful and ask for the right thought or action. Page 87 from the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. And then Steve adds on, I often find myself agitated when others don't meet my expectations. I hear that, Mr. Steve. I find I'm a, I am doubtful when my faith falters, when God doesn't meet my expectations. Expectations, I've heard many say, are planned resentments. Expectations are me trying to run the show again. Pages 16, 61 from the big book. With practice, we learn to pause before causing a bunch of trouble when we see these feelings crop up, agitation or doubt. We pause and seek a better mindset. We find the help we need before we speak or act. Help one, save two. Happy Sunday. So I, I just think that's a, a, a absolutely fantastic. Uh, Steve does that a lot in the secret Facebook group. He actually takes a, a passage from the big book or the literature, and he writes his own little, I guess what you would call daily reflections uh, uh, behind that passage. And uh, I'm so thankful that he does that. Thank you, Steve. Joan M. writes in to John M. Joan M. writing to John M. Anyway, she says, hi, Johns. So many thanks for your continued podcast. I try to listen every day during, quote, cocktail hour, unquote, as a distraction. While I also clean, knit, do laundry, etc. I struggled at that time of a day, at that time of the day for quite a while, but now I I stay busy and listen to you. A much happier exclamation point. So many thanks. I wanted to say that I felt Ryan L's interview was one of my favorites. He pulled himself himself out of a very dark place and now helps so many people in recovery. I wanted my son-in-law who suffers from addiction to listen to his podcast, but he is deep in his abuse of drugs, not interested. I think he's given up and my daughter is not far behind him. I've given them to God after years of enabling them. Very proud of Ryan for staying in there and fighting and winning. Well, you know, oh, by the way, there's a, uh, a clapping hands, a namaste hand, a clapping hand again, a namaste hand, and a clapping hand again. Thank you again, John, for your service to all of us alcoholics. You help keep us sober. Love, Joan. Well, I tell you what, Joan, love right back out to you. And uh, if I'm helping to keep you sober, uh, I'm appreciative of that. Uh, but like my friend Buddy C says, if I'm not here to do it, God will find somebody else else to do it. And if I'm helping you keep sober, I am very uh, thankful that you say that. But I will tell you this also, you and all the listeners out there 
listening right now, you help keep me sober as well. So it is a win-win situation. And uh, I think I told you this via email, uh, Joan, but I did pass on your comments to Ryan L. And he was very, very appreciative of your comments. Thanks for writing in. TJ writes in, he says, John, I am a high school shop teacher in Durham, North Carolina. I am also an artist who brings attention to endangered species by creating life-size sculptures. How about that? I am happy to share anything about my recovery. Maybe something can help somebody else who is struggling. I found Sober Speak on my iPhone podcast search by typing in either Alcoholics Anonymous or recovery-based theme. I can't remember which keyword I use. I listen to these over and over, and they help me to stay sober, my friend. Keep up the good work you do, TJ. And you know, he gave me his website to those life-size sculptures that he creates for endangered species, and it is absolutely incredible. Keep up the good work there, Mr. TJ, and thanks for writing in. Catherine posts on Facebook, and she said something that I like there. It said, feed your faith and starve your doubts, exclamation point. And I like that. I think about that old analogy where you have two German shepherds barking inside your chest or my chest, I should say. And they always say, which one is the one that's going to win? And you say, it's the one that I feed. And I think there's also an analogy with a wolf in that arena. I'll have to go look that up. Uh, uh, I like the analogy. But anyway, Catherine, thank you for posting that in the Facebook group. David C. writes in and he says, John, you are an amazing host to your guest and have such grace with how you communicate with your guest and all of us. Thank you again. Well, David, thanks for writing in. Um, you guys... You, you give me purpose. You make me see life in a different way. Uh, you help me to grow closer to God. You are my God with skin on, and I so do appreciate all of you. Jim S. writes in, and he says, Hi, John. I am definitely an evangelist for Sober Speak. Uh, I am an evangelist and promoter for Sober Speak. I'm telling everybody I meet in the program, exclamation point. Hey, a good story to share. I'm writing you from Scottsdale, Arizona. I have a friend leading a hike into the Grand Canyon tomorrow, Monday, and he has a slot open. So here I am headed to the Grand Canyon, but that's not the story. Here's the story. I got to downtown old Scottsdale, Arizona about two, two days ago, no car and only and the only meeting available all afternoon was within walking distance and is at a and is at a 4 p.m. almost 2 miles away so i walk over there takes about a half hour and nobody from the meeting shows up oh no jim and he says the name of the group is promises kept so obviously they're not <laughs> they're not living up to their moniker <laughs> I would say not, but three people did show up. Bill W. from Sedona, great name, he says. <laughs> Mateo, who just moved here from Miami, and Sue, who lives local, 
but had not yet been to that meeting before and me. So wherever there are two or three gathered, right? We all went to Starbucks, had an awesome meeting. And you know, I told them all about my meeting between meetings, Sober Speak. <laughs> I love this program, John, and I love Sober Speak. Thank you, John. Jim S. Well, thank you for writing in, Jim. I doth appreciate it. And here is one thing I'm going to end it with. And this is not really listener feedback, so to speak, but uh, uh, I got this from my daily email that I, I received from Transitions Daily. Um, and uh, it said in here, it said, Tradition 12, anonymity is the spiritual foundation of all our traditions, ever reminding us to place principles before personalities. And if you don't know, that is one of the AA 12 traditions. And here is something from the 12 and 12 on page 187. It says, as this tide uh, offering top public approval swept in, we realize that if that it could do us incalculable good or great harm. That public approval is what Bill was talking about. Everything would depend upon how it was channeled. We simply could not afford to take the chance of letting self-appointed members present them as messiahs or representing AA before the whole public. The promoter instinct in us might be our undoing. If even one publicly got drunk or was lured into using AA's name for his own purposes, the damage might be irreparable. At this altitude, press radio, films, and television, anonymity, 100% anonymity, was the only possible answer. Here, principles would have to come before personalities. Without exception, these experiences taught us that anonymity is real humility at work. It is an all-pervading spiritual quality, which today keynotes AA life everywhere. And that is from, once again, the 12 and 12, page 187. And if you folks have ever wondered out there, why I never give, by the way, when I'm in traditional AA meetings, I'm not, a le, I'm at the level of, I am not at the level of press, radio and films, uh, or internet. Um, I do give my last name, but when I am at this level, which is basically internet radio, I do not give my last name, nor will I let, uh, the people who come on this podcast give their last name. Uh, and that is because of this particular uh, tradition. Anonymity is the spiritual foundation of all of our traditions, ever reminding us to place principles before personalities. So just in case you were ever wanting that, we should do a whole episode on anonymity and what it means and what the book says about it, excuse me, more and more what the traditions say about it, what the concepts say about it, and how it is steeped in AA history. But anyway, that's it. That's it for this week. We that's it for this week. I will most likely be back next week as I always say, it is one week at a time. Love you guys. Thanks for listening again this week. Adios.